Welcome to Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staber, an hour where we bring you the latest news from science, technology, and the environment. Today, we're talking about Elon Musk's new company, Neuralink, that has successfully implanted a microchip into someone's brain. The chip is called telepathy, and Musk hopes that the brain-computer interface will make it possible to one day move a cursor with your mind. Here to talk about it with us is Muhin Musuf. I hope I said that correct. I apologize. A clinical professor of neurosurgery and psychiatry at the Stanford School of Medicine. Welcome to All Sides. Thank you very much for having me. So the Food and Drug Administration approved these telepathy chips for human trials in May. So I want to be clear, this isn't some rogue experiment that Elon Musk is running. The FDA gave its blessing, right? Absolutely. What can you tell us about the the chip itself? How big is it? Where does it get implanted into your brain? So this is the interesting part is... Um, with all the stuff that has been coming out about this, it's been very piecemeal. And we have not been able to actually figure out where it was planted. Um, I have seen some schematics in the press that show that it was somewhere in the temporal lobe, but I'm not sure where it was actually planted. It is actually working towards making the you know, movement or making something move with your thoughts. So my understanding would be that it would be close to the motor area. I know that it's very small and it has uh, threads and these electrodes that are coming out that can actually detect um, action potentials and which is what he actually meant by saying that we are able to detect neurons talking to each other. And I also have read that it is um, planted with, with a robotic arm. So it's able to do it very precisely. However, um, there are issues with that and we need to discuss how safe that is. Musk also didn't reveal any details about who the person is, um, but do we know anything about who received it and how they're recovering? All he said was they're recovering fine. Now, what what I understand from reading all the different uh, press uh, releases is that he invited people with ALS to join Mm. the the, the study. So I'm thinking that it should be an ALS patient. However, we have no idea what their state, what their health state is, what kind of disease or disorder they have, because that would really determine what the recovery is like and how successful this chip is. You're a senior research director at the Defense and Veterans Brain Injury Center in Palo Alto. So what kind of potential promise does this hold for, say, veterans with traumatic brain injury? So I think this is... um, a very important uh, commercial venture. It's always exciting to see things like this go leave the lab and go into the public domain. It'll help people that really need it. However, it is early in the clinical trial. We need to really understand the basic science behind it. A lot of this actually is based on a lot of the neuroscience that has been going on in brain-computer interface for the past 20, 25 years. In fact, um, Stanford has um, several papers that that just came out last year 
um, from the work of Dr. Jamie Henderson, we've actually, they've actually shown that it's very particular. Um, you can implant br uh, brain chips in people with traumatic brain injury and can actually stimulate certain areas in the brain, particularly the th thalamic areas, and you can actually improve their executive function. So this was actually a published paper. Now, what's interesting about this commercial venture is that I don't have a paper in my hand that shows what the study is, what the specifics are, and I, I it's very difficult as a neuroscientist to comment on um, very detailed aspects of this because I don't have anything written in front of me that has been published. Musk does say that he hopes these telepathy chips will one day restore body functionality to those with paralysis, like those living with ALS or perhaps those with spinal cord injuries. Um, the idea being that a person could control their phone or a computer just by thinking. And it's it's such a radical idea idea. It's, I mean, I think it has to represent such a promise for people who are sort of trapped inside their own bodies. Absolutely. I think it's, that's why I said the, you know, it's, it's very exciting. And what I would really like to say is that a lot of the brain computer interface studies are done in a controlled environment, in a lab or in a clinical setting. To have a chip communicate with the outside world world via, you know, Bluetooth or wireless just makes it so much more easier. But it also opens it up to a lot of regulatory issues as well as things that can um that, that can change uh, the way the brain is looked at. It could be looked at as a as a commodity that is open for other people to have access to. So I think there's there's comments on both sides about how exciting it is and how it can help people who have problems such as ALS or communication problems. Um, even, you know, with paralysis, they cannot move. But it also has this other side where people are thinking that it can actually improve function in the healthy brain. Now, that's very important because there's absolutely no evidence that this can actually improve function in a healthy brain. So that we, we have to keep that in mind. I have so many questions that we probably can't answer yet. Like, do the chips need to be replaced? What powers them? Is there like a battery pack somewhere or does like your brain's electrical impulses power it? What happens if it malfunctions? I, I feel like these are probably all the questions that will be answered through like these early trials. Absolutely. And I think I think for from what I read, it, it has a power. Um, it can be powered wirelessly. So it has a battery pack, something like this. But I think what's important also to consider is that every time we do brain stimulation experiments, we do um, actually we do clinical trials with brain stimulation and it's non-invasive. We are always very particular about where we stimulate. So location is really important in the brain, depending on what function you are trying to improve or bring back. And I again, I say I don't know where he implanted it. Um, so that look that is very precise has to be very precise which means each person's brain is very different so my temporal lobe is not going to be the same uh, you know, location as as yours it might be slightly different so the precision has to be exact your um the 
if you're using the robotic arm, then that has to prove that it's safe. Um, lots of lots of considerations have to be taken to make sure that it can be tolerated by the human body in the sense that how long is the lifespan of this? Um, are there any particular side effects for having this? Um, so there's a lot of things that need to be tested. I want to step back and talk a little more theoretically, because although Musk is starting this project for people with ALS and other disabilities, his goal is to make our brains bionic. He would like to have regular people like you and I uh, be implanted with these chips. And that raises some, some questions for me, one being that having to type or speak what I want to say into a text or a social media post to me feels like a healthy barrier between what I'm thinking and what I actually do in the world. Like you can regret a text or a tweet that you sent. And part of me wonders if these chips could make vitriol on the internet worst, if that makes sense. It does, actually. I kind of touched on that a little bit about, you know, looking at the brain as a commercial commodity. I think his original, what I read a long time ago in 2019, I think his original ambition that he wrote was that he was trying to mesh the human brain with AI. So trying to create this environment where your thought can do things without any device or you can actually just move things with your mind. Now, you know, every people who are neuroscientists and other people are very fascinated by sci-fi. I am too. I love sci-fi. I do too. And this, I know. And it kind of moves into that realm, right? And people start talking about what's possible and what's not possible. And this is where neuroethics comes in. This is where um, regulatory uh, stuff comes in. And People have different thoughts about it. My thoughts are exactly like yours. It is it is scary. And I would not want anyone to actually, you know, see what's what I'm thinking. There has to be a barrier. That's your individual, um, individual individuality. But go, taking it back to the science of it, I want to point out one important thing. The electrodes that are in the chip are picking up signals, meaning they're recording. And then the thoughts are supposed to wirelessly connect and move cursors on the screen. In order to actually make the brain do something in the terms of making the, you know, he wants to make blind people see, for example, you need to stimulate the neurons. So instead of recording, the electrodes have to stimulate. So we don't know how that works. So I think that, that connection is where you would be more open to um, having someone uh, stimulate your brain and maybe control that environment. But that part about stimulating the opposite direction, not recording, but stimulating, I don't know if that has been actually done yet. It also, does that make sense? Yeah. And it also makes me worried about... I don't know if like hacking into somebody's brain is too sci-fi for where we are technology wise, but the idea of if it's recording and transmitting, could it be recording other things about what I'm thinking? Right. And, you know, you have to be obviously where, where it is in the brain and how 
what you're trying to address. Now, I always go with the basic science, like if you're trying to make blind people see or para uh, people with paralysis move or people who can't hear, these are sensory things that are um, very important for patients who have these problems. And we should definitely work on providing, you know, brain chips and other ways to help them. All these other thoughts about, you know, trying to, uh, improve function in healthy adults and trying to make yourself into the super being where you can, that's where things get really murky. And as a scientist, I'm not, I mean, it's great to see in, in a movie. I'm, I'm not sure how <laughs> I would, you know, I, 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 I don't have a paper in front of me. I don't have any data. Um, so I'm not sure how I would look into that. Um, I, I think the fact that he's doing this with robotics and that it's connected via Bluetooth is quite exciting. Um, so I think that would be, that's definitely a plus. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> excuse me. Musk has said that he wants Neuralink to perform surgeries on more than 22,000 people by 2030. That feels like an ambitious goal. It does, yes, but, you know, you never know with him. He's been able to do quite a bit. So <laughs> um, I, I think one thing that actually I want to say is that communication is incredibly important for humans. And we've seen the the turmoil that it cost. It, it cost us during the pandemic. People were uh, unable to see each other. People were unable to communicate. And there's a natural very natural progression of mental health problems. Um, so I know that as much as 93% of your communication is lost on text. So one of the things that I'm concerned about is if you're able to create this kind of environment where you're only communicating with your thoughts, how does that affect the actual communication between human beings um, and trying to do things on text. And, and and it's just, to me, it raises a lot more ethical issues that can also um, verge on mental illness and mental health. Yeah, I also just, I wonder if it would make you more vulnerable to social media or internet addiction because it's it would be right there all the time and you quite literally could not unplug. Absolutely. Yeah. And then that's that's the end of you talking to another human being. Yeah, so. it's, it sounds like a lot of that, though, a lot of the sci fi concerns might be a couple of years out. But I do think it's important to at least be talking about them or considering them as because if we continue to build a way to do it, eventually somebody is going to do it. Right. I mean, the brain computer interface research has been, you know, going on for so long and there's there are people, researchers have shown in the lab and in the clinical environment that you can, um, you know, move robotic arms, you can um, uh, actually also speak. Um, this was in uh, ALS patients and stroke patients that uh, they could sp speak. Um, and there's a lot of knowledge base based on neuroscience. And what, what's important is that there is now technology is getting better and better. So I think the way that he's starting with helping patients is the way to go. And the testing, the, the proving of, the, of all the safety measures and the specific basic science questions that will be answered by people who actually need it. Um, I don't know about the 
healthy older adults or healthy adults who need communication um, help or things that can be used in everyday environment for internet. That is a little bit to me still further down the road, quite further down the road. That was Muhyin Musuf Adamson, a clinical professor of neurosurgery and psychiatry at the Stanford School of Medicine. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you very much. We're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we're talking about the delay in construction of the Intel plant here in central Ohio. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. Intel has postponed the opening of its chip manufacturing plant in central Ohio, moving the launch date to late 2026. The governor's office says a delay like this is not unusual for a project of this size and scope. But some union leaders are worried that delays could turn into an eventual discontinuation of the entire project. Money, jobs, and the future of the American chip manufacturing industry could be riding on what happens next. Joining us now is Wall Street Journal reporter Asa Fitch, who covers the semiconductor industry and who broke the story last week. Welcome to All Sides, Asa. Thanks for having me. So anyone who's embarked on a construction project, home or otherwise, knows that they often don't go according to plan, uh, usually over budget, over time. And the Intel project is a huge complex. So how significant is this delay? Well, it is, as you allude to, you know, it is quite, uh, it's not uncommon for, let's just say, for large, complex uh, construction projects in the chip industry to uh, to run behind schedule or to be postponed. Um, Intel set a date of 2025 for the first production when it initially announced the project did the groundbreaking in 2022. So it was pretty, it was a pretty aggressive schedule, I think, for the, the industry. And They've now, for a variety of reasons, decided to uh, slow down and postpone that initial uh, target date. So, yeah, I, I mean, it's not it's not unusual. We're talking about a, a project that's uh, going to cost $20 billion or thereabouts. And, um, you know, it's not your typical home renovation, let's just say. Intel cited market challenges and the need for federal grants as some of the reasons behind this slowed down construction timetable. And that kind of struck me as odd, given the demand for uh, these microchips. So what kind of market challenges is Intel encountering? So let's just take a step back here on the and and maybe just talk a little bit about the uh, chip market and how it's developed over the past few years. Um, you know, during COVID, when COVID really came into play in 2020, um, people started to, to work from home. They started to learn from home. They needed to buy uh, computers. They needed to buy uh, smartphones, other electronics to do that. 
in that time period, there was just overwhelming demand for chips. Um, Intel makes mostly makes CPUs that go into computers, personal computers, and into computer servers. And those markets just picked up. They went through the roof. There was, in fact, a shortage of chips for, for a while. Um, about two years ago, that shortage turned into a glut. And, um, you know, people who had bought computers, you know, during the outside of COVID decided they didn't need a new computer now because they just bought one. Um, and that that has been a, a major challenge for uh, for Intel and its peers. Um, electronics demand has just kind of fallen off. Um, there, there is high demand for chips, uh, especially chips that are good at doing AI computations. That's not Intel's really bread and butter. It's bread and butter is, as I said before, you know, PC chips and uh, chips that go to computer servers. So its market challenges relate to the challenges in, in those, you know, principally in the PC market, which, um, you know, declined perhaps 5%, a little bit more last year, depending on who you ask. Um, so it's, it's, um, it's been a, it's been a tough time for Intel in that sense. That's a really important distinction then that Intel doesn't make all kinds of chips because we do hear about the like increasing computational needs of artificial intelligence and you sort of think, oh, well, then people must be scrambling to get chips from Intel. But if they don't make that kind, then it is a different marketplace, essentially. Well, yeah, I should say that Intel does make <laughs> chips They're, they and they hope to get a huge share of the, uh, you know, AI computation market looking into the future. The fact is currently that AI chip market is dominated by NVIDIA, the company whose market value has soared past a trillion dollars in, in the past year. And it's become sort of the, the focus for investors for, uh, you know, revenue and profits in the chip industry recently. Um, Intel does have those offerings. It's simply, you know, it's not it's not on top of the heap, uh, top of the heap now. Um, you know, it's not impossible for Intel to get a, a decent amount of revenue from from that business, um, and it's it is growing. So, you know, they're they're hoping to do more. They just don't. Uh, they're not at the center of it right now. So Intel delayed its groundbreaking here in Ohio in 2022. It was they pushed it back by a couple of months, and some people viewed it as a pressure tactic to get federal funds flowing. Any chance something similar is happening here now? Oh, you know, Intel said at the time when they did the groundbreaking that the the pace and the scope of the construction would be dependent in part on the the availability of these government incentives. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I can't really speak for Intel, but, you know, I think that the calculus back then when they delayed the brown groundbreaking was that, you know, they didn't want to be out there um, celebrating a project before the before Congress approve the financing that was going to go into this project. Some of the financing at least was going to go into it. Now, you know, it's a little bit different. I mean, the money is coming. It's just a matter of when it's coming, you know, and it's, it's been, it's taken about um, 18 months so far, um, maybe plus or minus a little bit for this money to be distributed. It still hasn't come out. So, um, you know, it's, it's a constellation of these factors. And they, they said from the outset that um, it would depend on, you know, the pace would depend on this money potentially coming in. Um, they certainly never said Intel has never said that they would uh, that they weren't committed to the project. In fact, in fact, they've told me that they're extremely committed to doing this this project. And you know, as you can see, if you've been out there to New Albany, there's there's a lot that's been done so far. Yeah, you can you can definitely see um, 
they've put up some some structures there's actual like skeletons of buildings out there they've moved a ton of dirt so and it is a huge huge construction project this is not a kitchen reno as you said like this is like you know many many thousand square feet of warehouse and utilities and like pipelines and internet cables and all kinds of infrastructure that's going into this uh, site but I did want to circle back to something that you touched on earlier and kind of dive into it a little more in that Intel has cut some jobs and they had a, a gloomy forecast for their first quarter. And should folks here in Ohio be worried about Intel's less than stellar growth in the last couple of months? Well, that's I mean, um, the answer is I don't I don't really know. But, um, you know, that those are quarterly quarterly results that um, were, uh, you know, the forecast that Intel made for its current quarter was disappointing to to many analysts because of some weakness in its programmable chip area and its automotive um, chip, uh, you know, uh, investments. Um, those, if you listen to the company, if, if you believe them, I guess, it, those are short-term challenges. Um, and, you know, quarter-quarter results don't reflect on the company's long-term strategy. Um, you know, Pat Gelsinger, the CEO of, of the company, came in um, three years ago now and decided to transform Intel, turn around. Um, it had been struggling for, for a while. Um, and a, a key part of that turnaround has been reinvesting in the company's manufacturing. Um, Intel, uh, you know, has many factories. Most of its factories are in Oregon. It has some in Arizona. It has operations in in other parts of the country, but um, it's really a key central part of the the strategy is to make Intel grow big time in manufacturing. And Ohio is, you know, one of the centerpieces of that. Intel has has moved forward pretty fast with some of its other expansion projects in Arizona, for example, in Oregon, in New Mexico as well. Um, so if you kind of if you listen to the company, there there's no sense that I'm getting at least that they're sort of you know backing off of the project in Ohio. Um, they've already spent a lot of money in Ohio, so um, it would be quite extraordinary for them to really really back off substantially. But you, as you point out, you know they they have had uh, some problems. They've you know that their core markets have uh, struggled. Um, they've cut their dividend. They've done some layoffs. They've taken other, made other adjustments to this, uh, this, this down market. Um, and you know, it remains to be seen how how persistent those challenges are. But there's no sign that they're kind of pulling back yet. I, I think some of it might just be Ohioans' fears about getting close to something and then not quite getting it over the finish line, sort of, you know, <laughs> not to make a sports reference, but I'm sure the Cleveland Brown fans are very used to coming close and then not quite getting that uh, that final win. <laughs> yeah, I mean, I don't know if this is uh, if this is the drive or not, but probably, you know, this is... Uh... <laughs> this is we're still in the first quarter probably yeah i mean I, I wouldn't i wouldn't i wouldn't start to get that feeling of gloom and doom yet in my personal opinion but um i don't know i'm not a i'm not a <laughs> prognosticator really yeah and i will say the reaction from ohio officials seemed fairly upbeat the governor's spokesperson um said he was actually worried about the story sort of getting blown out of proportion. And they, you know, some folks, especially in Licking County, where the Intel uh, plant is being built, said, look, this will give us more time to get the school systems ready, to get businesses ready. So 
I can't tell whether they're just putting a positive spin on bad news, but everyone seems pretty confident that this is all going to work out in the end. Yeah, I mean, that seems like a reasonable reaction to to all of this stuff. I, I don't know. I mean, all I know is it's, it's been delayed to some degree uh, versus the initial schedule. Um, as I said before, you know, there's the company has been very, very clear that it's not uh, it's not changing its plan in Ohio. It's it's just about the the schedule uh, changing a bit in response to uh, marketing conditions, as we discussed before, and some other factors. Um, so, you know, that's that seems to me at least like a fairly reasonable reaction. And I just want to throw out there that the Wall Street Journal has this helpful video um, that's kind of like a CHIP 101 tutorial. So if anybody's listening to this and they're like, I don't fundamentally understand what a microchip is or how it works or where it sits in my computer, I would recommend checking that out because I think that's kind of neat to just walk people through how what these things are. Because like you hear the word microchip all the time, and but I don't know that anybody necessarily like fully, un- you know, you don't, it's a word you hear so much that you don't really know, but you kind of know. Yeah, well, well, thanks for the plug. You know, I think that underscores just how complicated this industry is, you know, um, and how hard it is to build these kinds of facilities and make and make chips. This is, I think, without a doubt, the most advanced, complicated manufacturing process that exists in the world. Um, some of the machines that you need to to make the most advanced chips cost, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars just for one machine, um, and you know, they do some pretty crazy physics stuff with lasers and um all kinds of other you know chemicals and things of that nature so you know it is it is uh, maybe useful to understand the context that we're dealing with here in ohio um to just 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 look at you know how difficult it is to to make chips in the first place yeah this isn't a traditional it's not like you're building an auto manufacturing plant this equipment is very specialized it's very expensive like precision in manufacturing these chips like the wiggle room that you have is like nano like meter like it's so small it is yeah i mean it's not um i know honda is developing some battery uh production operations there you know this is a different kind of um, manufacturing um it's just um you know it's hard to overstate how intricate it is we're dealing at the scale of nanometers um you know one nanometer probably you know thousands of those hundreds of thousands i I don't remember uh you know a hair is is you know some ridiculous number of nanometers wide you know it's it's just we're dealing with scales that are almost hard to imagine That was Wall Street Journal reporter Asa Fitch, who reports on the semiconductor industry and has been covering all the ups and downs of Intel. Thank you so much for your time today. Thank you. Coming up, we're talking about what happened when the tech CEOs went to Washington. That's when All Sides continues on 89.7 NPR News. Black perspectives haven't always been centered in the telling of America's story. Now, we're taking center stage. 
Introducing NPR's Black Stories, Black Truths, a collection of Black-led stories from NPR's podcasts. Search NPR Black Stories, Black Truths wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome back to Tech Tuesday on All Sides. I'm your host, Anna Staber. Tech CEOs from Facebook to TikTok went to Washington last week to be grilled by Congress over how their platforms can be harmful to mental health and to children. Joining us now to talk about it is CNET Managing Editor Russell Hawley. Welcome back. Thank you. So Mark Zuckerberg made headlines for his apology to the families of those who had lost loved ones. But I want to begin our conversation with this exchange between Republican Senator Tom Cotton of Arkansas and TikTok CEO. Do you have any other passports from any other nations? No, Senator. Your wife is an American citizen. Your children are American citizens. That's correct. Have you ever applied for American citizenship? No, not yet. Okay. Have you ever been a member of the Chinese Communist Party? Senator, I'm Singaporean. No. Have you ever been associated or affiliated with the Chinese Communist Party? No, Senator. Again, I'm Singaporean. That clip went pretty viral over the weekend. I think I saw it pop up in my FYP like at least a dozen times. And I, I, I can't personally decide whether I think Senator Cotton conflated Singapore with Taiwan or if it was a more calculated decision because TikTok's parent company, ByteDance, was founded by Chinese entrepreneurs. Yeah. So, you know, that clip is, you know, uh, more than being just sort of awkward and, and uneducated, but it demonstrated a series of questions um, that that uh, was was launched basically at knowing that the Chinese version of TikTok, which has a different name and it functions pretty differently, um, is is very, very different from the U.S. version of TikTok. And I think the wild thing about that is that the difference is in regulation. Um, which is a thing that all of the senators currently grilling that person have control over. Um, and and instead of, you know, taking regulatory steps, have have decided to invite these people up and, and sort of yell at them for a little bit for things that are weirdly unrelated. But it is true that those uh, those apps behave very differently, even though they are built uh, on extremely similar underlying technologies. And the hearing room was also filled with families who brought pictures of people that they lost to bullying on social media, loved ones who found harmful content, teenagers who gained access to drugs through social media. And I thought that was unusual. You don't often see like a hearing room packed with these parents holding. And at one point they stood up and they hold, held up all these pictures of their loved ones. It was, it was a pretty dramatic moment in that hearing. I think it was, you know, as, as, devastating as seeing all of these people who have lost family members or who are demanding accountability because they know people who have, uh, you know, either lost or taken their lives um, due to, you know, kind of bullying and, and you know, all the different uh, terrible things that happen on social media. Um, this was a wildly different uh, conversation than previous versions of this. You know, this is not the first time that Mark Zuckerberg has been brought up to Capitol Hill to answer questions, but in the past, it has often felt like the senators or the or the House members in previous cases um, have just been unprepared. The questions about how Facebook works and, you know, how the company makes money and things like that um, are completely irrelevant in the face of the harm that these companies can often do. And so I did find that part of the the conversation on Capitol Hill, you know, a step forward from previous versions of this conversation because it was extremely focused on on this one kind of undeniable fact that the algorithms that are created 
um, in order to either make you more angry or to, to get you to interact more um, with, with a thing. Um, that there's a, there's a real functional human harm in uh, in many many cases across the world. Yeah, we recently interviewed the author of the book Filter World. It's all about al- algorithms and culture. And there was one example in the book that really it, it's living rent free in my head for the last couple of weeks. And it was that the algorithm sent an email to a young teenager who was struggling with self harm and depression and suicidal ideation. And I I believe it was the Pinterest algorithm sent her images in an email of self-harm that she might want to pin to her board about self-harm. And as a as a parent, like in inside, like the rage that I would feel over something like that, like they're just like I think everybody recognizes that that's inappropriate. And I know it was an algorithm. I know it was not a person, but that email should never have been sent. It's wildly inappropriate, but it is also indicative of the world that we are going to live in for the next little while as uh, AI continues to be integrated in so many different things without appropriate guardrails, you know, without limitations on what kind of things should be shown to to different audiences or, you know, what things are appropriate to, you know, kind of associate with the concepts of loss and grief. Um, you know, this is this is not something that there's any real evidence to show that these social media companies have learned from the the losses that are presented to them. And, you know, while there was a lot of, you know, kind of uh, well-deserved anger and, and, you know, kind of frustration pushed at these CEOs, there was just very, very little conversation about what uh, steps are going to be taken to be done with this. Even in the case of X, um, where ex-CEO uh, Linda Yaccarino um, the day before the uh, the the you know kind of press conference that ended up being for X um, on Capitol Hill, um, you know, announced that they had uh, hired a hundred people to go and and start filtering through stuff on Twitter. Um, if you're not aware of the amount of work that goes into filtering stuff on a social media platform as big as Twitter, a um, hundred people may seem like a lot, but it's important to keep in mind that by comparison, Facebook has hundreds of thousands of people doing that exact same kind of work. Um, and, and still don't get it right all the time, you know, so, so it's, it's really tough to, to see these steps, um, in some ways applauded when they're applauded very out of context and aren't actually going to solve some of the problems that exist right now. Yeah, there's, we, and I mean, we in the collective human, we, we create like essentially an avalanche of content every single day. And we're kind of sending a handful of people out with shovels to sift through it. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, this is the kind of thing where the the conversation was originally, you know, we will we'll be able to build robots. It'll do a really good job of doing this thing. But there's, you know, while uh, some of the most egregious versions of things like child pornography or, or you know, kind of physical abuse and things like that, um, algorithms are reasonably OK at catching some of that stuff. Uh, it, it is not nearly good enough. Um, and and it leads a lot of experts in the field to wonder how much of it is by design because of the reactions that a lot of that stuff ends up getting from people who are shocked or surprised that they're seeing that kind of thing in their feed. Another moment that got a lot of airplay was Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg's apology to the families in the room, right? He stands up, he turns around, he apologizes to the families in the room, but he didn't take blame for what happened and I thought that was an important distinction like throughout the hearing he he felt very bad about what had happened but it didn't seem like he said we're responsible for what happened to your family members 
So it's also important to put this moment in context. There's been a lot of showing of the video of Mark Zuckerberg turning around and, and giving the apology, uh, you know, whether you take it as sincere or not. Um, personally, I have seen Mark Zuckerberg's very sad face on Capitol Hill many times. Um, so this didn't seem like a, a wild departure, but it's really important to keep in mind that this was not something that Mark Zuckerberg did willingly. Um, if you watch the moment before that that video um, that, that went so viral, um, you know, he was challenged to do so four times in a row um, to, to turn around and say something, anything at all to the, the people who were standing there with photos and with T-shirts and, and, you know, with with, you know, memos of the, the, the people that they love. Um, so it, it wasn't even so much that the uh, that the apology happened, but it, it had to be extremely forced. And even when it was forced, it, it was not uh, an apology in, in the sense that he's taking accountability. He's it is the uh, I'm sorry that happened to you. Uh, kind of apology. And speaking of Meta, which is the parent company of Facebook, Facebook is turning 20 years old, which made me feel really old, only <laughs> because I remember when it started spreading across college campuses. Like, I remember when it was called the Facebook. So I had a very moment of like, oh my God, it's 20. It's definitely a you know a, a platform that has had a, a long and relatively contentious journey, and it's it's also kind of an indicator. You know, Facebook is one of the first you know kind of internet companies to have survived in such a way that that twenty years later, it's not just that it continues to exist, but that there is no obvious challenger to its popularity. We're not talking about MySpace anymore. Exactly. Yeah. There. You know. In. In. You know. Before Facebook, there were. You know. It, Facebook was not the first social media uh, service, but it certainly was the first to have this kind of staying power. I want to talk about a new service. Um, well, I guess it's turning a year old. So Google's AI generator Bard turns one year old, and it's been a bit slow out of the gate compared to other generative AI. Is that kind of a fair, like it's had a slow launch rather than like sort of the rapid launch of some other AI offerings? So it, it's interesting that you put it that way uh, because, you know, Google had been doing artificial intelligence things and weaving it into a bunch of its products, you know, when it came to things like generating autocomplete messages and, and you know, kind of helping you answer emails and, and even doing things um, like calling a restaurant for you and placing a reservation and things. These were all kind of disparate things that hadn't been put all under the same name. Uh, and so it's frequently viewed as, as you know, kind of not being as well assembled as uh, the, all of the headlines that gathered around ChatGPT. Um, but really, Google had been working on this technology for 10 years before anybody knew what ChatGPT was. And it, and it you know, it became a marketing decision almost to put all of these uh, ideas under the name Bard and have it be this conversation style, you know, kind of communication thing that that people have access to. But I think that really just became the result of uh, you know, Google doing a lot of research into how people actually wanted to use AI into making small parts of their life better instead of having this kind of all-knowing assistant that they were talking to um, at, at the same time. And I've read some of the press releases from Google about BARD. Specifically, um, in November, they announced that they were expanding access to teenagers. And they, I mean, very front and center, they're, they're you know, sort of seizing on that moment of concern and talking about working with organizations like the Family Online Safety Institute and how they're going to shape the content and the policies and prioritize safety. It seems like they're trying to get ahead of this conversation that was happening in Congress. Yeah, it's a really fascinating thing to look at Google as like an entire organization as opposed to like its individual products, because at the same time that Google is putting in these guardrails for artificial intelligence and how it scrapes information from the Internet 
and allows users to use that information in a way that is uh, viewed as more ethical than the way that ChatGPT is currently doing things. At the same time that that is happening, Google is facing lawsuits from having scraped an enormous number of public domain books and made them available via Google Books uh, through, you know, kind of smart search and, and things like that. Um, so, you know, it, it's it's a it's a real kind of left hand, right hand situation when it comes to how Google views data that it has access to and permission to share. Um, but at least with BARD, there does appear to be this uh, this sort of ethical conversation, um, whether that is a, a marketing thing to differentiate it from ChatGPT or it's something that they honestly believe is important uh, is, in my opinion, an open question. But at least publicly, it seems like a good thing for the people who are using it. Yeah. One of my favorite uh, little tidbits about Bard and how it's working is that it tries to limit the kinds of images you can create. And I know that's something you and I have talked about too, and there may be workarounds, but um, a person tried to create an image of a man tossing a coin from the Hoover Dam. And so it wouldn't do that saying throwing objects into the Hoover Dam is prohibited. So, <laughs> I mean, that's a very benign thing that you're breaking the rules on. But I thought that was it was interesting that they're thinking about like, OK, that's not legal. You can't create that image. Yeah, especially when it comes to these, um, you know, these these kind of really obvious guardrails or at least seemingly obvious now that that uh, ChatGPT and others have kind of fumbled through them. Um, especially when it comes to image creation, not being able to uh, invoke the name of celebrities uh, in in image creation. So you can't, you know, uh, I think one of the examples that we did in testing it was uh, two football players uh, from opposite teams having a picnic together. Um, <laughs> as just, you know, kind of a, a weird thing that, that, you know, we know that image generation is capable of. Um, and it flat out said no. And one of the things that BARD is, at least for the moment, slightly better than ChatGPT at is, uh, is is you know continuing to say no, you know ChatGPT like we talked about before, you can kind of you can kind of walk around getting the image made in in a handful of cases, um, but at the very least for the moment, Bard has a, a pretty decent set of guardrails for stopping you from from creating images with very specifically celebrities. I don't know what protections exist for normal human beings like you and me. Um, but it's, uh, you know, in, in light of the recent, uh, you know, kind of devastation surrounding Taylor Swift's images being, you know, generated and shared on the internet, Google can very confidently say that that is extremely unlikely to happen using its platform, which for, for now is a very good thing for them. Although I'm sure the internet would love to see a photo of the Kelsey brothers and Taylor Swift at a picnic. Honestly, I think if we give it a month, they'll probably just take the picture for us. <laughs> I want to shift to talk about the Apple Vision Pro. So we talked a bit about it a couple of weeks ago, but now you guys have actually sat down and reviewed it and sort of played with it. And I loved the description in CNET's review of the headset. Uh, writer Scott Stein described it as an iPad exploded into space. Scott has done an incredible job on this, and and he has been uh, really, really great at, at taking these really weird VR concepts and and putting them in in ways that are really easy for for folks to understand. Um, but in many ways, that is that is not just kind of flowery language, but literal. Almost all of the apps that you can use on Vision Pro are iPad apps that just sort of float in front of you, which is great if you're familiar with those apps, but it's less great if what you're looking for is like a crazy VR experience that's different from the thing that you're used to. Um, and ultimately, that's that's the thing that's important to know about the Vision Pro right now is that it has really incredible hardware, uh, including cameras that make it so that you can walk around and not feel like there's any kind of visual lag. 
um, or, you know, kind of the ability to detect where your fingers are at all times and, and you know, kind of make gestures and things based on that. Um, if you're looking for something that is a technical upgrade over any other VR experience that exists right now, this is absolutely that. Um, but it is extremely limited in what you can actually do with it right now. The software is is just not fully baked, in my opinion, um, as there, there are a handful of experiences that are really great, but a lot of it is just having an iPad that floats in front of you. Um, and that is... And it's cool, but it's very cool, but it's 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 a really interesting problem for Apple to have right now because its biggest competitor costs three thousand dollars less. And for the moment, <laughs> you can do a whole lot more with it. Um, that's not to say that that, uh, you know, that this is not, you know, kind of a, a hardware upgrade in many, many different ways. And that, you know, Apple software developers will will make it better over time. Um, but its current experience makes it really challenging to recommend someone drop almost $4,000 on right this second. Yeah, I will say I loved Scott's writing and his descriptions. Like as somebody who was in print journalism for over a decade, he does a really nice job of explaining. Like he had a, he actually ends up saying he doesn't think he would recommend it to friends and family just yet. And that parts of it, while it was stunning, that he said, quote, others don't feel entirely finished, which is sounds like what you were describing. Yeah, I think Apple has a tremendous experience at looking at the market and seeing something that it can improve by making it like really, really easy to use and, and making it something that everyone can sort of commoditize. The problem with doing that in VR right now is that very few people comparatively have experienced other things in order to know what isn't good. Mm. Uh, so making the leap from a $500 headset to a $3,500 headset just requires a lot more and i think apple is hoping that that more happens in the public view rather than uh rather than in private i do also want to just make it super clear for everyone who has seen all of the social media videos of goofballs walking around in public with these headsets on <laughs> that the vision pro does absolutely nothing for people who have the headset on and walk around it is not built to be moved this is 100 percent a thing to get your attention and you are really just best served to ignore those people and hope that they don't accidentally trip and land on their very expensive headsets. Um, but there's there's actually no benefit to wearing the headset and getting in a car or, you know, kind of walking oh, around. That seems like a terrible idea. It does seem like a terrible <laughs> idea, but there are a lot of social videos right now of, of people who have, have acquired the headset earlier and, and are doing exactly that. Um, and what's just really fascinating about that is that the software doesn't support this at all. Um, you know, so there's there's genuinely no benefit for it other than to get people to look at you for wearing a headset on your face while you walk around. That was CNET's managing editor, Russell Hawley. Thanks, as always, for your time today. Thanks for having me. And that'll do it for this Tech Tuesday on All Sides with Anna Staver. 